In the world today, there are a lot of top 10 lists, top 10 beaches in the world, top 10 restaurants in Manila, top 10 places you have to visit before you die, top 10 viral videos of 2023, top 10 greatest basketball players ever, top 10 things you should never say when you're angry, or the FBI's 10 most wanted. Simply put, there are a lot of top 10 lists. I came across this funny list of top 10 things you would never hear in church. Number 10, hey, it's my turn to sit in the front pews. Number 9, I was so enthralled and captivated by your sermon, I never noticed your sermon went 25 minutes over time. Number 8, personally, I find sharing the gospel much more enjoyable than watching Netflix or a movie. Number 7, I decided to give our church the 10,000 pesos a month I spend on going out to eat. Number six, I volunteer to be the permanent teacher for the high school Sunday school class. Number five, forget the pastoral minimum salary. Let's pay our pastor so that he can live like we do. Number four, I love it when we sing songs I've never heard before. Number three, since everyone's here, let's start the worship service early. Number two, Pastor, we'd like to send you to this conference in the Maldives. Number one, nothing inspires me and strengthens my commitment to the Lord like our weekly time of offering. Unlike this funny top ten list, there's a serious list of ten commands God gave to the people of Israel for how He expected them to live. We know them collectively as the Ten Commandments. When the people of Israel left Egypt, They had been enslaved in captivity for a long time. They had forgotten how to worship God. And they didn't know how to live in relationship with the true God, Yahweh. And so as they were leaving Egypt to return to their promised land, they were susceptible to being wrongly influenced by the pagan nations that would live around them and surround them. Therefore, to clearly teach them what it meant to live in righteousness before the living God and how to worship Him, and also to differentiate themselves from the false and pagan religions of the Canaanites. God instituted the Mosaic or Levitical laws for the people of Israel to live under. The Ten Commandments were a part of the larger Mosaic laws. While following the Ten Commandments or the law perfectly, which no one could, did not save people, the law showed the perfect righteousness, a very high standard that was required by God for one to enter heaven which is made possible only by the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from sin. While we as Christians are not under the Levitical laws given to Israel, which includes the Ten Commandments because of the cross of Christ, the spiritual principles on the proper relationship between God and man and between man to man taught in the Ten Commandments applies to us as they are all repeated in the New Testament except one, keeping the Sabbath as part of the two great commandments, to love God with all of your heart and to love our neighbors as ourselves. I want to focus on the first two of the commandments in this message as it deals with what God expects of His people when we are in relationship with Him. Let's call these relationship rules with God. I recently saw a poster that read, Rules for Happy Marriage. Be friends, kiss, hug, hold hands. Share, listen, respect, be thankful, forgive and forget, never stop dating, communicate and trust, show gratitude, encourage each other, laugh together, 
Never stay angry at the same time. Don't bring up the past. Say, I love you. Remember why you fell in love. I thought to myself, no wonder there's so many unhappy marriages. There are so many rules. But don't worry. I'm just going to give you three relationship rules with God that God himself gives us. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 20 as we take a look at verses 1 to 6. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. I read now verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. In these verses, we find the authority and right of the one who will give the commandments. He's none other than the living God. God reminded the people, I am the Lord your God, and in case you have forgotten, the one who delivered you out of slavery in Egypt, showing forth my power over all the Egyptian false gods, including Pharaoh himself. In fact, the phrase, the Lord your God, is repeated five times in verses 3, 5, 7, 10, and 12 when giving the Ten Commandments to remind the people of the authority and right of the one who gave them. Therefore, Moses is not reporting ten opinions or ten suggestions that he heard from a good friend, but ten commandments given by the Almighty God. The implication is that these commandments should be taken seriously and followed because they are given by the one who is in charge of the universe and over people's lives, and there are consequences for not obeying. I think we often forget that, both the Israelites and us today. That's why God needed to establish at the very beginning the authority, power, and right of the one who gave these commands. Because we all know that we respond differently to people's commands based on our perceived notion of their power, authority, and right. If a homeless person says, pay for my meal, you'll probably not do it. If your friend says, pay for my meal, you may say to them, but you have more money than me, you pay for your own meal. If your siblings say, pay for my meal, you tell them, ask mom and dad for money. They all don't have authority. Now, if your parents say, go to bed now, you may tell them, I'm not tired. But if they say, if you don't go to bed now, I'm going to take away your devices and turn off the Wi-Fi, then you may say, okay, because they have power. If a soldier or a police officer says, step out of your car, especially if he has his gun drawn, then you say, yes, sir, because they have the right to command you to do so. I hope you see my point. God is clearly asserting and establishing his authority, power, and right to give the commandments to his people. Now look with me at verses 3 and 4. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. In the first commandment in verse 3, God told the nation Israel that they were to have no other gods besides Yahweh himself. Historically, this was a call for monotheism, believing in only one true God, which is what we believe. Israel was to have no other gods besides Yahweh. He was not just to be the first among several gods, like in the pagan religions that surrounded them, but the only one true God. There are no others. You see, each morning, 
a faithful Jewish person, even until today, declares the Shemai from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The second commandment in verse 4 was a prohibition against making images or likenesses of Yahweh or making objects that stand in the place of God, like the sun, the moon, planets, animals, figures, and other creatures, and then worshiping them as gods. Because any likeness of God demeans him and hinders rather than advances his worship. The Lord is clear when he declares in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. You see, when people make an image of a God, they are putting themselves in a position of authority over the deity as their creator. They can then treat God as some sort of object they can control and take around like a guard dog or a pet. The implication is if I have this object, then all the powers of God are with me because of this object, His blessings, His protection, His good fortunes, and so on. So if we have the idol or object close to us, then we are safe and blessed. But if we don't have it with us, like as an amulet or a talisman, then somehow God's power is not with us. But you see, God wanted His people to accept their place as the created beings of the divine Creator. He cannot be limited in this way. He cannot be limited in an object. He is omnipresent, meaning everywhere always, to guide and protect us without being confined to an object or figure. Further, God didn't allow for idols or carved images because people may confuse the image with God and worship the man-made object rather than God himself. Jesus was clear in John chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now as Christians, you may be thinking that since you don't worship literal idols, this second commandment doesn't really have any practical implications or applications for you, but I believe it does. In Tim Keller's excellent book, Counterfeit Gods, he defines an idol as anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give is an idol. If we take the Christian angle out of it, an idol is the thing that drives your life. Everyone has an idol. Everyone worships something. Idols can be outward-facing, like money, sex, or drugs. But idols take many other forms. Inner idols are extremely powerful thoughts and feelings we value. Examples include respect, power, status, control, greed, and comfort. All of these idols operate inside our minds and ultimately drive our lives. It's important to understand that idols are not just bad things. Things typically seen as good can be turned into idols. Work, success, family, even religion itself can be an idol. Anything can be an idol. In fact, the good things in life can become most sinister in our deepest idols. As Damon Allison writes, why do we have idols? Idols give us security. 
a sense of fulfillment and purpose. We put our hope and faith in them because they fulfill our dreams and desires. Idols typically start with something which at the core is healthy. Wanting to be successful, for example, is noble and pure. We should strive to be successful in life. It's when taken to an extreme, when success becomes an idol, that it destroys you. Perhaps you start working 80-hour weeks, take on multiple side projects, step on others to get ahead, get involved in unhealthy groups, focus your life on work. If you've made success an idol, you'll do whatever it takes to be successful. How do you recognize idols in your life? Things become idols when they control your life. When we become depressed or paralyzed in fear, thinking about losing them. So my friends, what are you afraid of? What if the stock market crashes and your investments are worthless? Would your life be ruined if you lost your job? What if your wife left you? Idols lie at the heart of your deepest fears. That's why Jesus so clearly pointed it out in Matthew chapter 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. My friends, we need to identify the idols of our lives so we can rid ourselves of those idols in order to please God. Think about where you spend your time, money, and attention. What occupies your mind when you have nothing to think about? What do you habitually think about which gives you comfort, confidence, and strength? What are you the most afraid of losing? Once we have identified the idols in our lives, then we can get rid of them. Now, putting it all together, we have relationship rule with God, number one. There can be no other gods. There can be no other gods. This is very much a simple, no loophole rule. You can't have or worship any other gods, period. And that includes any substitutes for God in the form of idols, carved or idols of the heart. You see, at its core, this is a question of loyalty. God is saying, you either choose me or you choose someone else to worship. God wants to be in an exclusive relationship with us. How many of you who are married would be okay with someone else in the relationship? How many of you who are dating or in an MU relationship with a significant other would be okay with a third party in your exclusive relationship? I'm sure none of us. So if it is not okay to have someone else in your exclusive spousal or MU relationships, then it's also not okay for you to have idols in your exclusive relationship with God. And we should understand and accept this truth. God is wanting and expecting loyalty from us. I like how James Packer puts it. What other gods could we have beside the Lord? Plenty. For Israel, there were the Canaanite Baals, those jolly nature gods whose worship was a rampage of gluttony, drunkenness, and ritual prostitution. For us, there are still the great gods, sex, shekels, money, and stomach, greed, an unholy trinity constituting one god, self, and the other enslaving trio, pleasure, possessions, and position, whose worship is described as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Football, sports, the firm, work, and family 
are also gods for some. Indeed, the list of other gods is endless. For anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his god, and the claimants for this prerogative are legion. In the matter of life's basic loyalty, temptation is a many-headed monster. In the matter of life's basic loyalty, temptation is a many-headed monster. My friends, God demands loyalty and expects it from the people who are in relationship with Him. There can be no other gods. There can be no split loyalties. Where does your loyalty to the one who is almighty and has given you everything lie? Now, why can there be no other gods? Look at verses 5 and 6. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. The Bible tells us God is a jealous God, not in the sense that he's envious of other gods, because he knows that all other gods are figments of the imagination and don't really exist. Now, I don't know if you know the difference between envy and jealousy, They're often interchanged in usage, but there is a distinct difference. Envy is the emotion of desiring or coveting what someone else has, an attribute, an item, or a certain physical feature. Jealousy, on the other hand, is the emotion of fearing that something or someone you already possess is threatened by a third party or will be taken away by someone else. Simply put, generally, Envy is a situation between two people, while jealousy is between three parties. Envy is a reaction to lacking something, while jealousy is a reaction to the threat of losing something, usually someone. Therefore, God is not envious of other gods, as if he is scared of losing out to them, but he is rightfully jealous of what is rightfully his, his children. In this context, the word jealous expresses God's love for His people because He wants the very best for them. Just as parents are jealous over their children and spouses over their mates, so God is jealous over His beloved ones and will not tolerate competition. Some people have said that jealousy is wrong and therefore God should not be expressing this emotion. But that's simply not right. It's okay to be jealous of what is rightfully yours. Because if you're jealous of what is not rightfully yours, that is known as coveting. But since God created each one of us and has sacrificed through His own Son, Jesus, to redeem us, then we belong to Him, and therefore He can be rightfully jealous for us. The Almighty God desires and deserves the exclusive love and loyalty of His people. Now, if God is rightfully jealous of His children, these verses tell us that God can use any means at His disposal, including severe discipline, to bring His children, whom He loves, back to Him. Yes, God is gracious. God is merciful. God is loving. God is forgiving. But His patience does have a limit because He's also holy and righteous, and He is rightfully jealous of His children, who may choose to associate with other false gods, whether it be real idols or idols of the heart. I think this should be a warning and a wake-up call for us today 
who may want to abuse God's grace, thinking we can do whatever we want to do as His children and there be no consequences. Now, as a side note, some people use verses 5 and 6 and other verses to argue for something called a generational curse or a generational sin. If this were true, that means that there are sins caused by your ancestors that you are now responsible for. And that seems very unfair that God would punish children for the sins of their fathers. But the Bible specifically tells us that God does not hold children accountable for the sins of their parents, as Deuteronomy 24.16, Exodus 24.16, and Ezekiel 18.4 so clearly tell us. Is there then a contradiction? The answer is no. What is being talked about when these verses mention the iniquities going down to the third and fourth generation is that the effects and the consequences of sins are passed down from one generation to the next. When a father lives a sinful lifestyle, his children are either likely to mimic his lifestyle and vices or have to deal with the consequences of his sins. There is no such thing as generational curses, especially for one who places their trust in Jesus Christ. When we become Christians, we are new creations, as 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 tells us. The sins of our fathers have no hold over us, because how can a child of God still be under God's curse? Romans chapter 8 verse 1 is clear. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Verses 5 and 6 are true when it states that the effects and the consequences of sins can be felt by generations to come. But the reverse is also true. The effects and the consequences of godliness can bring blessings to succeeding generations. In the Bible, we see how Abraham's faith brought blessings to his descendants and how David's heart for God and ministry helped people long after he had died. Personally, my great-grandfather came to know the Lord in China and prayed fervently that his descendants would serve God. And today, many of his descendants serve God faithfully in churches all around the world. In 1677, an immoral man married a licentious woman. 1,900 descendants came from the generations begun by that union. Of these, 771 were criminals. 250 were arrested for various offenses. 60 were thieves, and 39 were convicted of murder. These people spent a combined total of 1,300 years behind bars and cost the state of New York nearly $3 million. On the other hand, the Edwards family represented another union of the same era. The third generation included Jonathan Edwards, the great New England revival preacher and president of Princeton University. Of the 1,344 descendants, many were college presidents and professors. 186 became ministers of the gospel. 86 were state senators. Three were congressmen. 30 were judges and one became vice president of the United States. My friends, what type of legacy do you want to leave your children and your family? Remember, how you live your life and what your relationship with God looks like will have ramifications in your lifetime and in the next.
Now, putting it all together, we have relationship rule with God number two. God is rightfully jealous for our attention. God is rightfully jealous for our attention. Again, since He is rightfully jealous for our attention, He can and will do what it takes to get us to focus our attention back on Him. Because quite frankly, it is disrespectful to God to have our attention focused elsewhere. For example, if you were on a date with your wife, and while you were talking to her, you were looking at another woman, what would you expect would happen to you? You may get slapped in the face, or your wife may create a scene and walk out on you. Why? Because you disrespected her. Or if you were playing a video game, and your mom asked you to take out the laundry basket for her to wash your clothes now, and you ignore her or tell her, I'll do it later. She may pull the power plug to your desktop computer or shut it off and yell at you, and it would be justified because it is disrespectful to the one who birthed you and is serving you at that moment for you to disregard her. When my wife or my daughter talks to me and they want my full attention, they grab my phone, put it out of reach or behind their backs, and proceed to tell me to listen, look at them, and pay attention. Without the distraction of my phone, they now have my full attention. My point is this. As it is in life, so it is with God. If He is rightfully jealous, He will do what needs to be done to get our attention. We owe the Almighty God our lives and our full attention and focus. There's a third relationship rule with God that is clearly taught in the Bible in the context of the Almighty God versus false idols. And it is nowhere as clearly stated as in Isaiah chapter 46. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 46, as we quickly take a look at verses 1 to 7. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 1 to 7. I read verses 1 and 2 and 5 to 7. Baal bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beast and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place, and it stands. From its place it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer, nor save him out of his trouble. God was saying the pagan and false gods that Israel had unfortunately turned to in the days of Isaiah the prophet were laughable. Almighty God was mocking these worthless idols. If they were such great gods, why is it that they cannot even carry themselves? They have to be carried. Today, they have to be provided for with food and candles lit for them. They are unable to talk and they are unable to help or save anyone because they themselves are man-made by the craftsmen. Instead of carrying the burden of the people, they are a literal burden to the people who worship them, having to be carried from one place to another. In the context of modern-day relationships, if these idols were people, we would call these people toxic. All they do is take and take, but they do not give. 
It's always about them, what makes them happy, what needs they want. You trying to seek their approval, which seemingly cannot be satisfied. And yet, even as Christians, we throw ourselves at a very toxic world, literally begging them to pay attention to us, saying, we will do everything you want just for your approval for you to accept me. And what has the world really done for us? Nothing. It is a take-all type of relationship when we are in a relationship with a toxic world and idolize the things and pursuits of the world. We give, the world takes. In his book, Playing God, Andy Crouch notes, all idols begin by offering great things for a very small price. All idols then fail more and more consistently to deliver on their original promises while ratcheting up their demands, which initially seem so reasonable for worship and sacrifice. In the end, they fail completely, even as they make categorical demands. In the memorable phrase of the psychiatrist Jeffrey Santinover, idols ask for more and more while giving less and less, until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. Eventually, they demand everything and give nothing. In contrast, look at verses 3 and 4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. God tells his people that from birth to their old age, he has been with them. He never abandoned them. He is a God who loves them with an eternal, everlasting love. And he gives them the very best, even though they disobeyed. Imagine, God's people had turned away from him and rejected him. And yet, he wanted to carry them through their pain and suffering. My friends, this is the heart of a jealous God. He knew that the idols of this life would only lead to disappointments, pain, and suffering. That's why he states, I'm always there for my people. God will carry their burdens. He will provide deliverance. You know, as a parent, I can fully appreciate these verses, even when my children disobey me because of my love for them. I still want to help them as I carried all three of my children in my arms when they were born. If I could, I would carry them in my arms even when they are old and frail. In spite of all the bad things they did to me, said to me, wished upon me, all because of love. I remember a family in the U.S. whose parents supported their child all the way through expensive medical school, putting him up in an apartment in a med school in another city gave him money for his every needs. But what is surprising is that the son had cut off communications with his parents and rejected them. He said he wanted nothing to do with them while accepting their money. I remember his parents telling me to pray for them as they drove on three occasions at least to the city where he was going to medical school just to try to talk to their son, sadly to no avail. He wouldn't meet them or talk to them the parents who were supporting his livelihood and education. 
They even once brought their elderly grandma on one of these trips just so he would communicate with them, but again, to no avail. They finally just left a note for him, telling him that they still loved him and would happily accept him back any time. Now, I'm not saying continually giving the son money was the right solution. I'm just illustrating the heart and love of parents for their children, even if the children have rejected them. That is what God is telling His people. The idols can't even carry themselves. How do you expect them to carry you through life? I, who created and formed you from birth, will carry you from birth to old age. I am the God that you need to worship and trust because I'm the God that loves and gives you the best in life. You see, this is relationship rule with God number three. God faithfully loves and gives while others only take. God faithfully loves and gives while others only take. If this is what God desires for us to know in our relationship with Him, then it should be easy for us to choose to remain faithful to Him, to the one who died in our place, rescued us from death, freed us from the bondage of sin, delivered us from eternal damnation, has become friends with us by declaring us justified, has given us everything good by His grace. Would you serve and follow the God who loves and gives you all? Or will you seek the gods of this world who only take from you? My friends, you and I cannot serve more than one master. You and I can only choose to serve the one true living God or the gods of this world. When you are in relationship with God as a Christ follower, remember there are rules He establishes for those who are in relationship with Him. Are you aware of these relationship rules and living it out? Because remember, there can be no other gods. God is rightfully jealous for our attention. And God faithfully loves and gives while others only take. My friends, with these biblical truths, is God the only God in your life? Are you loyal to Him? Do you say you are in relationship with Him but pursue the idols of this world and the idols of your heart? Identify the idols in your life and get rid of them. May we all worship alone the one true God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. It is so clear what You desire of us. But yet we've muddled it up. We've said that it's okay to pursue the idols of our lives and pursue the things of the world and that You're going to be okay with it. But we ask for Your forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We want to be in relationship with You, in an exclusive relationship with You because of all the things You've done for us. You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf. You give us purpose. You give us grace, mercy, a wonderful purpose in this life and so much more. Help us to focus our attention exclusively upon You. May our loyalties be steadfast. May our relationship with You be intimate, strong, and deep. Challenge Your people, Lord, so that we don't get sucked into the temptations of this world, that we live a life holy and pleasing before You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 